Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Hi, welcome to Faith Dialogue. I'm Pastor Ken Baer. Our Wednesday messages are all part of a series we call Pondering Prophecy. And over the past few months, we've had the opportunity to speak to many of the topics that are included in the scriptures that pertain to the second coming of Jesus Christ, including all of the signs of his coming, the seven-year period, generally referred to as the tribulation period, the Antichrist, the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. Uh, while we've spent some time in the book of Revelation, we've also drawn from Old Testament prophets of Daniel, Ezekiel, um, and Isaiah as well. Today, our topic is called After the Rapture, and we'll be reading two uh, very important scriptures that pertain directly to this event called the Rapture of the Church. And they are from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter, as well as his letter to the Corinthians. Now, I'm not going to get into the debate of when the rapture occurs, nor am I really interested in hearing from people that want to tell me that the word rapture is not in the Bible. Uh, you know, I've heard what they have to say. And I really don't need to hear it again. Actually, uh, they are arguing, or this is really an example of an argument based on a, a false pretext. They have something they want to say, so they argue it over and over again with louder and louder voices, assuming that sometimes people will just give up and agree with them. Actually, if you have a copy of the Latin Vulgate Bible, which you probably don't because you don't speak Latin, but the Latin Vulgate Bible was the primary translation almost the exclusive translation of the Bible from the 4th to the 16th century, 1200 years. And if you had the Latin Vulgate Bible, you could go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and you would see the English word rapture in its Latin root and it's called raptural. The Greek word is translated from, uh, the Greek word is actually harpazo, which means to snatch or to take away. Uh, in most of our English translation, this word harpazo um, is translated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 as being caught up. So, as long as I've already given you the address of one of the two primary scriptures that we're going to take a look at today, why don't we go ahead and dive in to 1 uh, Thessalonians, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first letter, chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So in, in preparing for this message today, I realized there are a number of different ways that I could approach the topic. Um, I could take this discussion. For example, uh, we could address what happens after the rapture for those that are, are left behind. 
However, this has actually been done a, a number of times, and, and, and quite frankly very well, including the 16 books and the four movies by the, the uh, late uh, Tim LaHaye and uh, Dr. Jerry Jenkins. Those books and movies actually are, are all pretty well done. I don't know if we needed truly 16 books, but when you take a look at what they wrote, the characters, the events, the provocative way that these two authors introduced the biblical narrati narrative dealing with the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, the chaos that followed, it was actually very creative. It was very informative as well. Even for those that had never had any, any um, any experience in reading Bible prophecy. Their depiction of the global community leader uh, Nikolai Carpathia uh, uh, as the Antichrist provided an interesting characterization. Uh, it was fictional, uh, of course, but still an interesting look at this end-time world leader that the Old Testament Daniel refers to as the Little Horn, and the Book of Revelation refers to as the Beast. So, looking at today's message, after the rapture from those left behind has already been done. But we could look at this standpoint from what happens in heaven or the events that are foretold to happen on the earth after the rapture, um, after Jesus returns for his bride uh, and resurrects the dead in Christ. Um, by the way, as we read this, I, I hope you got the, the, uh, the uh, understanding that this is instantaneous. This happens in a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, I think to start off, what we ought to do as we approach this topic after the rapture, we should first talk about what the scripture says about those who are resurrected, who are actually raptured. Those that are physically, that physically are changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And I've already referred to it, so let me read to you uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 54. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul shares a, a mystery. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, what is a mystery? Well, the wor word mystery in the Bible refers to a, a sacred secret. I like that. I read that and I thought that was great. It's a sacred secret. It's something that has been hidden in the past but has now been revealed. For example, Jesus said that he spoke in parables so that some of us would understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. In this scripture from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is referring to the mystery regarding the resurrection of the believers. It was You can find it in the Old Testament, but it's shrouded. It's difficult to see. So Paul tells us clearly this mystery those who are in Christ. Now this, this is a unique moment when all believers in Jesus, living and dead, will be instantly transformed into our glorified eternal bodies. Paul says that our mortal bodies put on immortality. I like that. Death is defeated. Now Paul tells us this is necessary. 
He says in the previous verse, in, in verse 50, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. You know, while all Christians affirm the resurrection of the dead, many do not attach some of these specific teachings of Paul, and these teachings are actually pretty clear. Today, many believe in life after death, but unfortunately don't fully anticipate the, the resurrection when death is confeded and our transformation is truly complete. You know, in the early church, this was not the case. If you read some of the writings of the early church, the early church fathers and the preachers, well into the Middle Ages, often spoke about the resurrection. And they spoke more about the resurrection than they did about heaven. They anticipated the resurrection of the dead. You know, this saying of the resurrection of the dead is actually included in our, the two ancient creeds of the church both the Nicene as well as the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 AD, the fourth century, ends with these words. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. The Apostles' Creed ends with similar statements, these beliefs, that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Now, the, the teaching of the resurrection and the hope of the resu resurrection was central in the thinking of those going back in the church from, to the Middle Ages. Uh, and today we can see those, those, that thinking in what archaeologists call tomb effigies. Tomb effigies are three-dimensional likenesses which uh, often were made of nobles and royals because it was expensive to do this. They are life-size sculpture. And often that's, that sculpture is reclining on a stone slab or a, a table. Husbands and wives were often seen in these effigies as, as holding hands. Typically, the effigies are, 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 are the, sculptures of the, or the sculptures of the departed in their, their pride of life. Uh, they're depicted as being... A, a, early 30s, 33 years of age, as that's based on the, uh, on the age that Jesus was when he was resurrected from the dead. You know, today we typically don't talk much about the resurrection. We speak of heaven. It seems our hope is in going to heaven. However, in the Bible, it's called the resurrection. This rapture, what the Apostle Paul calls the blessed hope of the believer. All this talk today about heaven, and we actually, know, actually know very little about heaven. Or better yet, we know very little about this intermediate state uh, between death and the resurrection of the saints, this intermediate state. Scripture makes it clear that the believer is ushered directly into the presence of God upon his demise, his death. Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. However, these verses that we reference today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that there's a generation that won't die, that they'll be changed. Um, and the, the, the scriptures tell us that, that while we're in the presence of the Lord and we've died, but before prior or prior to the resurrection, um, we have not received our, our glorified bodies. Uh, there's been no resurrection. Upon death, our bodies go to the grave and await the rapture. 
This is generally referred to as the second coming of Jesus Christ, or the end of days. We know that when we die, we are in Christ's presence, and there's certainly no pain or suffering. There are passages that indicate there's an awareness after death, a, a consciousness. But the main event, the great event, which is the resurrection of the body into life eternal, has not yet happened. Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He says we all must be changed. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 he says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We can also clarify the difference between the resurrections we see in the New Testament. For example, the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. Lazarus emerged from the tomb when Jesus called his name. But Lazarus's body was merely resuscitated. He still had his, his old body without any damage from being dead for, for three days. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, that was a completely different resurrection. Jesus was transformed. He was glorified. Jesus had a brand new body. He still had flesh and bones. He wasn't a, a spirit or a phantom, but his body was different. It was better. It was much better. Jesus had the ability to move through space, for example, uh, in walls. Twice, Jesus appeared to his disciples uh, by appearing in a room in which John uh, reminds us the door was locked. At the same time, Jesus said that he, that he wasn't a spirit. He had flesh and bones. Thomas felt the holes in his hands and his feet and exclaimed, My Lord and my God. You know, the Bible is, is actually silent on the capabilities of our, our future resurrected selves. Probably it's good that it, it is. However, it seems like we will be able to interact with both the spiritual as well as the physical worlds. The Apostle John teaches this as well. After the rapture, our physical bodies will be very much like Jesus' glorified bodies. In 1 John, for example, he states, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And that's 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. You know, often when we think about resurrected bodies, we look forward to younger bodies. I guess it's only natural. Back in our prime, when we had wrinkles only when we frowned, or when our legs allowed a little more spring in our step. But you know, actually our bodies today, regardless of how old you are, are undeniably fragile. As we are actually temples of the Holy Spirit, our temples are more like the, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness made out of cloth rather than the stone temple built by Solomon. We are obviously susceptible to disease as well as the common dangers from slips and falls as well as high-speed collisions uh, from, uh, from unfortunate encounters with both sharp and blunt objects. However, the main purpose of our resurrected bodies will not to be decorate ourselves with a cape like some kind of a superhero, but the main purpose of our resurrected bodies is actually spiritual. It's in order for us to inherit the true heaven and our true purpose. So let's move on and see what's in store with our resurrected bodies after the rapture. There are two significant events that will take place in heaven after the rapture, and there's one significant event that takes place here on earth that all of us that are raptured will participate in as well. 
The two significant events that take place in heaven after the rapture are the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb. These two events precede our return to earth with the Lord in the second coming. They take place during the time of the tribulation. Um, as we believe that the believers are raptured at the very beginning of the seven years, actually prior to the seven years of tribulation, uh, it'll happen during those seven years. If you choose to believe that the rapture doesn't occur until midpoint, and you're correct, and that's a big if you're correct, then these two events will be during the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. So first, the judgment seat of Christ is also called the Bema seat. The Apostle Paul writes this, he says, For we will all stand before God's judgment seat, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. Now this judgment seat of Christ is often called the Bema seat. And this Bema seat judgment does not determine salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. Christ died so that we may have eternal life. All of our sins are forgiven and forgotten, so there's no need for any sin to be judged at this judgment seat of Christ. However, the judgment seat of Christ involves believers giving an account of their lives to Christ. It's the Christian performance review. At the judgment seat of Christ, our sins have been forgiven. They've already been judged. However, the Bible is clear that there are rewards that are available to the believer. If we have been faithful, we will receive a reward. Some will have many rewards, others may experience remorse. Uh, missing out on all the opportunities to be faithful and responsive to the calling of God on our lives while we were still alive. The Bible tells us that even the smallest and most insignificant action done on behalf of God's kingdom will not be overlooked by our Heavenly Father. There will be a reward. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus says, Your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now in the New Testament, uh, Paul actually describes five individual crowns. I'll list them, but we're not going to spend any time on them. These five different heavenly rewards or crowns. It's the victor's crown, the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, and the crown of, of glory. You know, all of us will give an account. Some will receive crowns. Remember the, the two parables that Jesus spoke of that were very, very similar. One is the parable of the talents. The other is the parable of the minas. Both parables highlight the servant's faithfulness or lack thereof. All of the servants received something from the master. You know, I love the parable of the talents mainly because of that word talent. Now, we know that in ancient Greek, uh, the Greek language, talent meant a, a measure of money. But in English, uh, talent means something different. Uh, while it's used for money in the Bible, um, in English we understand that all of us have different abilities, different opportunities. But all of those abilities and all of those opportunities can be used for the glory of God. These two parables illustrate how the servants give an account to the master of what they've done with their talents, the minas, the opportunities in their life and their faithfulness. 
Now, the other event, I said there were two events that were going to occur after the rapture. The second event is what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible gives us an amazing metaphor of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, the ecclesia. And that is that the church is called the bride, the bride of Christ. And Jesus is called the bridegroom. This metaphor is, is deep and it's actually complete. Um, and it's spoken of a number of times, including in the book of Revelation. And we're told in the book of Revelation that the bride of the lamb, of the bride of the lamb, and it speaks to the marriage supper. Let me read to you chapter 19 of Revelation, beginning in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. This is chapter 19 in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. We're close to the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. This is after the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls. This chapter, chapter in the beginning, chapter 19 beginning, has all of heaven rejoicing after God has judged the beast, judged the harlot, Babylon the great has fallen. And those that have been martyred, that have been calling out for vengeance, have been avenged. The angel then calls out and to say, get ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the great feast that all of us that are saved by the blood of Jesus will participate in. Jesus saw and heard the heavenly multitudes praising God because the wedding feast of the Lamb, literally the marriage supper, was about to begin. Actually, when we read the Bible, we have a pretty good understanding of the wedding customs um, at the time of Jesus in Israel, specifically the wedding customs of Galilee, where Jesus was from. Galilean weddings had three major components. First, there was a marriage contract that was signed by the parents of the bride and the bridegroom. This began what was called the betrothal. However, from a legal perspective, the couple was, was already legally married. It was much more than what we would call today the engagement period. This betrothal was referenced by the Gospels in speaking of Joseph and Mary. Mary, as you remember, was betrothed to Joseph, and she was found to be with child. That's referenced in Matthew chapter 1 as well as Luke chapter 2. Now, after the betrothal, the bridegroom would return to his father's house and prepare a place for them to live. Jesus refers to this when he assured his disciples that he would return and bring them to his father's house. According to Jewish customs, about a year later, the bridegroom would return. And this was the second step when the bridegroom, accompanied typically with his male friends, came to the house of the bride at, at midnight. Uh, carrying a torchlight parade through the streets. Now, this custom is based on the parable of the ten virgins, and we read that in Matthew 25. Now, while the bride did not know exactly when the bridegroom would return, the Bible says that no one knows the day or the hour, she would be expected to be ready. 
The third phase of the marriage is the marriage supper itself, which typically would last for a number of days. Now, this is illustrated in the Bible. Uh, we saw this at the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, where Jesus turned the water into wine. The vis this vision in Revelation of the marriage supper of the Lamb is the third phase, this third step in the marriage process. The bride has already been betrothed. Jesus, as the bridegroom, has uh, will come back at likely what seems to be the middle of the night, when we are least likely to be expecting him. This is a picture of the rapture, when Jesus meets the church in the air and takes us back to his father's house. The marriage supper then follows, and we see it being announced in Revelation chapter 19. This is, again, the third and the final step of this wedding process. This occurs in heaven just prior to the glorious return of Jesus to the earth. And if you read chapter 19 closely, you'll see that the church returns with Christ to the earth. Verse 14 says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him, that's Jesus, on white horses. This brings us to our, our third event, the one significant event that takes place here on earth that we will participate in as well, and that is the millennial reign of Christ, or the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, the book of Revelation tells us that Christ returns to the Mount of Olives. He destroys the enemies of God, he judges the nations, and rules as king of kings for 1,000 years on the throne of David. Now, there are people that subscribe to, a, uh, to what's called amillennialism, meaning that they take these 1,000 years to be largely symbolic. But nevertheless, the book of Revelation references the 1,000 years in chapter 20 of Revelation six times. Let me read some of chapter 20 to you as it's the best reference to what's going on during the millennial reign of Christ, which is, again, is 1,000 years. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years, so that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgments were committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Verse 7, And when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So here the Bible teaches that the saints of God rule and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. Jesus rules and reigns from Jerusalem on the throne of David. This is the fulfillment of the promises of God to the people of Israel. God is faithful and will faithfully restore the Davidic kingdom and the glory of the kingdom of Israel during the thousand years. Now this glory will surpass the glory at any time 
during the reigns of either David or his son Solomon. The Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, as well as Ezekiel, speak specifically to this time period. Also, the Psalms and the Gospels make reference to it as well. At the end of the tribulation, all of Israel is saved. And that's Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 11, verse 26. Scholars that examine all of the biblical prophecies regarding to this time period, the thousand years, um, believe that the earth is restored to a time that is similar to what we saw in the Garden of Eden. The lion will lie down with the lamb. There will be no more war. Um, Israel is the nation whose God is the Lord. And all of the nations of the earth will recognize the reign and the rule of King Jesus. Now we who are inhabiting our glory of glorified bodies after the rapture will return with Jesus to the earth at the end of the tribulation and we will rule with him. That means we have, what does it mean to rule? It means we have jobs. Uh, we're administrators, we're officials, we're kingdom representatives. You know, my wife and I had the opportunity to live in Washington, D.C. Uh, area for a couple of years. You know, I spent a lot of time myself on, on Capitol Hill with people that were either elected or had been um, uh, had elected and voted into office, or they worked with people uh, that had been elected or voted into office. You know, for many it seemed that initially it would be glamorous, but actually what I observed was it was a, a lot of work. The Bible is clear, however, that the Christian will reign with Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Apostle Paul writes, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. That's uh, 2 Timothy. You know, perhaps we can think of it this way. We shall reign with him during the millennium, and most likely we will endure. You know, in any case, I, I'm looking forward to it, and I think many of you are as well. So here's our summary after the rapture. After the rapture, the believer is caught up into heaven, and the first event is the Bema seat judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, where we as believers give an account of our lives. Some of us are rewarded, some are not, but all get to go to the second event, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. This marriage supper of the Lamb occurs in heaven. It's a huge event. It's the culmination of our official and sacred relationship with Jesus Christ. And at this marriage supper of the Lamb, we are honored participants. We're not strictly guests. Finally, when the Lord returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation, um, Lord returns literally to destroy the enemies of the Lord and of Israel. We who have been in heaven in our new resurrected and perfected bodies return to the earth with the Lord and we reign with him for 1,000 years. You know, my friends, while it is till the day, we need to be more and more like Jesus. Jesus said this exactly in John chapter 9, or um, uh, yeah, the Gospel of John chapter 9. Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me or sent us. Night is coming when no one can work. Amen. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. 
You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.